Good morning, church. What an exciting way to kick off our service this morning with those four baptisms. Praise the Lord for that. Um, because that, by the way, is not anything we're doing. That's something he's doing. Uh, so we just get to celebrate what the Lord has done in baptism. I want to encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. We'll actually read the exact same passage we read last week as we began this series in 2 Samuel. Um, verses 1 through 16 as it serves as the first narrative for us. I hope you have your copy of God's Word with you. If not, the Word should be on the screen, but it's better to have it in hand. Uh, so if you have turned there and you are ready to read God's Word with me, would you do me a favor and stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word together this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do give you great thanks this morning for not only your work and salvation as we saw pictured and visibly displayed in uh, baptism this morning, but we thank you for the word of God, which is what bears and brings that life forth. Lord, we know that there is no gospel without the word of God, right? The gospel must be heard in order uh, for, for sinners to have their hearts changed. And in the gospel, we find God's word. God's word 
uh, tells us about your gospel. Lord, would you be with us this morning? This, this is a hard text, and yet it's such an important text for us to see, um, to apply, to obey this morning. Would you cause your people to hear so that we might become more and more uh, made into the image of your son, Jesus, and that you would be glorified? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay, so just to recap, last week we started off with the question, what in the world do an Amalekite Saul and David have in common? And also, how could they possibly all show us a clear picture of the gospel? Well, we saw in order to do that, we can't just take this smaller narrative, this smaller story, and attempt to understand it apart from the larger narrative. So we had to look at the larger narrative in order to understand the smaller narrative. So we did a quick biblical recap of, recap of biblical history in about 10 to 15 minutes. I'm going to aim to do it a little bit shorter this morning. We start with Israel. In fact, we start with God's promise to Abraham that he promises this man, Abraham, from you will come a nation that will be as many as the stars in the sky and through them the entire world will be blessed that people that God promised Abraham are the people of Israel he reiterates that covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai but he shows them that uh, it is it, the state affairs is conditional for that covenant that he's going to deliver them a land they're going to be his people they'll live under his rule as long as they obey the law of the covenant and so we see immediately Israel not be able to obey the law of the covenant they constantly fail they constantly reject the Lord of the, the word of the Lord but Jesus uh, but God sends them a deliverer named Joshua Joshua and through Joshua's ministry they conquer the promised land. They conquer their enemies, the giants that they were afraid of, and they take over the land that God had promised them. He gifts it to them, and they're living now in the land. You think that that would cause them to want to obey the law of the covenant, but they don't. In fact, what we see in the book of Judges is our memory verse that instead everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I don't know if you know about that, but when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, well, you get a society much like 21st century America. And so what we see is a constant rejection, rebellion against God's word. And because of that, wickedness falls upon them. In fact, this is the context in which 1st and 2nd Samuel are written. Israel is in the land. They have the law, but they are rebellious against it. They are rejecting God's word and they are living amongst the wickedness and paganism of the countries that they've already dispossessed. In fact, it's bled out even as we see the beginning of 1st Samuel to the priest. Eli and specifically his sons Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they steal from the Lord his glory. They're taking glory from the, for themselves and God will not give his glory to another. So because of that, as punishment, uh, God takes the life of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas and he allows Israel to be routed by the Philistines. And yet, because he is a God that holds to his promise, he sends to them another deliverer, a man by the name of Samuel, who's the final judge, who's prophet and priest as well, and he delivers Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The people respond by asking God to give them a king just like those of the nations. So God does. He gives them a king like Saul, who is head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a tall man. He's a mighty man, but he's paranoid. He's violent. He's angry, and he rejects the Lord, the word of the Lord. We see that in 1 Samuel 15. And because he rejects the Lord, the word of the Lord, the Lord rejects him. 
he declares that he has rejected him as king and has anointed another. God actually gives Israel something they never asked for, and that is a king after his own heart. But Saul does not hand over the crown and the throne willingly. Instead, he constantly rejects and rebels against the Lord. In fact, the rest of the narrative in 1 Samuel we see is about Saul's uh, dissension into more uh, pagantry and wickedness and evil and David's ascension to the throne through his own humility and exile. David has been taken out of his land. He's on the run. But but God has declared that Saul's life is going to end. And as we saw last week, the word of the Lord always comes true, right? If the Lord declares it, it's going to happen, and that's what we saw. So here we are now in this narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 1. We saw three things regarding the timing of the narrative last week. The first is that first phrase that says, now it came to pass after the death of Saul. This is significant because this transition is found in many other places in the Bible. In fact, the book of Joshua starts with, now it came to pass after the death of Moses, and it marks to transition for Israel into a progressive greater height sort of situation. But then Judges begins with after the death of Joshua and we see the declination, the descent down into wickedness and evil. So we ask now after the death of Saul, which way are we going to go? Are we going to go up into progression to obedience and holiness or is Israel going to continue into the spiral and go further down? Well, this is all going to hinge on this question. How will David respond to the report he has been given. So that's the first timing indicator we saw. The second timing indicator we saw last week is after the slaughter of the Amalekites, which gives us a hint on how David will respond. Because we saw that the slaughter of the Amalekites was actually fulfilling the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy. This is the thing that Saul failed to do. And David is continually acting in accordance with the word of the Lord. The third timing indicator we saw was on the third day, which often denotes a, a phrase of deliverance. It communicates when deliverance is taking place. And we know that ultimately deliverance that happened on the third day was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We moved on from the timing of the report to the, the messenger of the report. And we saw that it was this... This man who therefore then becomes a young man as the narrative goes on. And he's an Amalekite. He's a nameless man. But he has his clothes torn and ash on his head because he's about to deliver some news. And that's actually where we pick up in the delivery of the report. Whew. All right. The delivery of the report. This is where we start today's narrative. This is where we pick up. The report itself is delivered in verse 4. David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. Now here's something you have to remember. David is on the lamb, right? David, when he receives this news, where is he? It tells us he's in Ziklag. Where is Ziklag? Well, I'll tell you where it's not. It's not in Israel. It's in the land of the Philistines. Why would David, the anointed king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, be in the land of the Philistines? Well, because Saul was trying to kill him. He was chasing him like a dog all day long. Everything, in fact, the messenger communicates, we already know as we read 1 Samuel 31. Saul and Jonathan died, Israel's defeated, many have fallen, and the rest flee. We know all that. But as we encounter it here in 2 Samuel 1, we're actually meant to be in the story. 
The narrator of 2 Samuel 1 is not attempting to give us information. He's recording for us an event. And as the messenger is delivering his spin on the story, that's not what we are just supposed to take in and say, well, then that's what happened. We already have what transpired in 1 Samuel 31. So I want us to now listen to the message through David's ears. One, David is eager to know how it went with God's people. And two, David, out of anyone, has the most to gain by Saul's demise. So even if you set aside what he might gain in terms of kingship, just relief from being pursued all day long would be a reason enough for most of us to be like, whew, hot dog, praise the Lord, ding dong, the witch is dead, the witch is dead, right? So the question then becomes, when the news is delivered, you are reading this through the narrative, getting caught up in the story, you find yourself asking, how in the world will David respond to this news? What is he going to do? And just to add a little bit more suspense, we don't find out right away. Why? Because David asked the messenger a question. He says, how do you know? How can you be sure that Saul and Jonathan are dead? I mean, you're not getting this secondhand, so how do you know? And the young man tells him. So now we move from the delivery of the report to the evidence of the report. This is the evidence of the report. This man, this young man, as he says, begins to dive in with this story. He starts and he explains what happened. How do you know? Well, here's how I know. King David, he probably said, trying to be respectful this time, it just so happened by chance that I was on Mount Gilboa, right? I was going for a stroll, collecting some seashells in the midst of a raging war, and I look up and pfft, there's King Saul, the king of Israel. I mean, how he begins this story is absolutely absurd, right? He says, it just so happens I was by chance on Mount Gilboa, just going for a friendly stroll, getting my steps in in the midst of a raging war. Uh, a little irony there, right place, right time, or more like probably wrong place, wrong time as we see the story unfold. Regardless, either way, this man is present and he sees King Saul. So not only is he going for a stroll in the midst of a raging war, but he's apparently close enough to identify Saul. In fact, he's close enough for Saul even to give him a holler, right? That Saul is able to even talk to him in the midst of this battle because Saul looks over his shoulder, which actually the text says he looks behind him, which if he's leaning on his his sword, I don't, anyways, um, I don't know how that happens, but he looks over his shoulder and he says to the Amalekite, hey you, who are you? And the man responds, I'm an Amalekite. So Saul says, come on over, stand beside me and kill me. By the way, we're going to take this up in a couple of weeks, but I'm going to point it out. What is Saul doing here in the story of the Amalekite? Again, it doesn't matter if it's true. The narrator wants you to know that what Saul was doing in his final moments he is leaning on his spear. Listen, that is more than just a posture. That's a picture of Saul's life. He was a man who leaned on the spear, but that's for later. Here in Saul's final moments, he sees the young man. He calls for him, and the young man comes over. And if you're familiar with what transpires in First and Second Samuel, you'll love the irony again of this being an Amalekite. This is not an accident. Saul is judged in 1 Samuel 15 finally. Why? What's the word of the Lord that he has rejected? 
Well, he received a clear command from the Lord to go and strike down the Amalekites. It was already commanded by law in Deuteronomy 25, but the Lord gives a specific command to Saul. He is told they are to be placed under the ban and he is to completely strike them down. Instead, he strikes down some of them. He keeps the rich, the famous, and what's beneficial to himself. He rejects the word of the Lord and he is rejected specifically for not killing the Amalekites. And here it is, an Amalekite, that ultimately strikes him down. At least according to our story. Remember, again, there are a couple of real important things we need to keep in mind if we're going to understand what really takes place here, okay? First, Brother Corey has just read for us the account in 1 Samuel 31. We know what happened. We know what transpired. What actually happened? Well, we're going to choose to believe the narrator. The narrator told us what happened. And then we also have the story of the Amalekite. We're going to believe the narrator. We're going to say that the narrator actually recorded what, hap what happened, which means the Amalekite is lying. I, I genuinely believe that that's the case. And I think the scripture testifies clearly that's the case. Anyway, so what actually happened? Well, Saul was wounded very badly by an arrow. So he cried out to his armor bearer. He cried out his armor bearer to strike him down and his armor bearer would not strike him down. Why? Well, it says because he feared greatly. Who did he fear? By the way, when you're interpreting historical narrative, the best thing you can do is just keep asking questions. I mean, pretend you're my five-year-old and just ask all the questions in the world you can possibly think of. That's how historical narrative works. Who did he fear? Did he fear Saul, who's lying there bleeding out, laying on the ground, saying, please kill me? No, I'm too scared of you to kill you. That wouldn't make any sense at all. So who did he fear? God. He knew God. He knew that Saul is the Lord's anointed, and you don't put your hand out against the Lord's anointed. So if the armor bearer knew that, then what did the Amalekite not know, apparently? He apparently doesn't know that you don't put out your hand against the Lord's anointed. Why doesn't he know that? Questions, again, are just so helpful to keep asking questions. It's because he doesn't know the Lord. And so in 1 Samuel 31, Saul falls on his own sword and kills himself. That's what actually happened. So what happens after that? Well, apparently an Amalekite just wandered up collecting seashells, getting his steps in, whatever. Who knows what he was doing? There are a whole host of questions we could ask there as well. But we know from the narrator that actually he was part of Saul's camp. The narrator says he escaped from the camp of Israel. He was most likely fighting with Saul, probably a part of Saul's army. But how did he survive? Because apparently the enemy was all around. The armor bearer fights to the death, falls on his sword and as well. He died with him. Everyone who was on that hilltop was killed in the midst of the battle. And somehow this Amalekite lived. That's strike number one, by the way. I'm not going to judge too harshly here either way, but he survived. Strike number two was he brought the crown and armlet to David and thought he would be rewarded for it. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. According to this testimony, he obliged and finished Saul off. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, he testified to it. Yep, I murdered him. I killed him. Struck him down in cold blood. Matthew Henry actually brings up the fact that you have to wonder if he sees a little displeasure in David's eyes because he begins to follow that immediately with, but uh, because I could tell he wasn't going to survive anyway. That's really why. Well, the messenger says, because I'm sure that he could not live after he had fallen. 
And by the way, I want to say that this is the second proof that this man really doesn't know the Lord. See, what we already know, because we're, trans, uh, we're interpreting this whole thing in the broader context, being the Bible itself, is we know the Lord. But you know, even if it's more immediate context, in the context of 1st and 2nd Samuel, do you remember how 1st Samuel begins in chapter 1? I hope you had the opportunity to read 1st Samuel. If you don't, please start. 1st Samuel begins with Hannah's prayer. This barren woman who gives a prayer song or song prayer to the Lord. It's a beautiful prayer. And in that prayer, she gives us a bit of information that we're going to take up as a lease on how to interpret the rest of First and Second Samuel. You know what she says in that prayer? She says that the Lord gives life and the Lord takes it away. Life is his. It belongs to him. It's not Saul's, it's not the armor bearer, it's not the Amalekite, it's not yours, it's not mine, it's his. So the Amalekite doesn't know that. He thinks, well, Saul's laying here bleeding out. He's already fallen. There's no possible way he could live, which again tells us he doesn't know the Lord because we know that even the Lord's able to raise the dead. So it shows us clearly, and in fact, I've got to touch on something, and I really hate to touch on a very sensitive subject quickly. Uh, so please, what I'm about to say, I want you to hear in as much grace as I can convey it. But I think it's something that needs to be said in our society. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, you need to understand and recognize that suicide and assisted suicide are unbiblical, ungodly. Not okay in any circumstance. In fact, I would actually argue that suicide and assisted suicide are actually denials of the true and living God who alone numbers our days. He gives life, he takes it away. Suicide and assisted suicide give greater weight to our suffering than they do the glory of God. They elevate our own comfort above God's right to be the one to decide the length of our days. It's really a final declaration that I'm my own king, I'm my own Lord, and I will choose the way in which I go. Now, I know many have been affected by suicide and assisted suicide. I hope you know what I mean by, say, assisted suicide. I'm not talking about hospice care or DNRs. You know what I mean when I'm talking about assisted suicide, certainly. I know many who have been affected by this, and hear me. It's heartbreaking. I pray that you know the comfort and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if you are somebody you know who's experienced this. Now, let me answer this question. Is suicide or assisted suicide the unpardonable sin? No. But it's a sin. It's a clear sin. And we need to recognize that and certainly show grace to those who hear. So please hear that in as much grace as I have to say it. But we really need to understand that because it helps us understand what's taking place in this story, doesn't it? And so let's get back into our narrative. As we move to the end of verse 10, this man finally offers definitive proof of Saul's death. The man has his crown and his armlet to prove it. In fact, the man has traveled three days to be able to present this crown and armlet to King David. He wants to be the one to actually proclaim David the victor over his rival Saul. And so we return to our original question. How is it that David's going to respond to this report? We're back in the shoes of David wondering what's going to happen next. Is David going to rejoice? Is he going to dance a jig and be like, woohoo, he's dead? Is he going to reward the man, the Amalekite, for giving him this news as the man hopes that he will? 
Or maybe David will feign disappointment, be like, oh, shucks, Saul's dead, huh? That's, that's terrible. It, no, no, it's really, really terrible. And then on the way home, be like, woohoo, don't have to deal with that anymore. Is that what he's going to do? Maybe a little more subtlety? Or maybe Saul will mourn Israel and Jonathan and celebrate the death of Saul. I mean, that would be understandable as we read this narrative, wouldn't it? Or maybe, as we'll see, David mourns this entire tragic event and executes justice. Ding, ding, ding. That's exactly what we see. The true king who has received the report now responds to the report. Let's look at the response to the report. This is the third thing we see here, and that is the response to the report. And we see this very clearly in verses 11 and 12. Would you read that with me? Let's put our eyes on the text and read that together. It says, Therefore David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with them. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David mourns Israel and their king. Now, this is just astounding to me, right? Because we've said if anybody has something to gain from the death of Saul, it's David. Even if he was just happy to be able to return to his homeland of Judah and escape the exiled territory of the Philistines. I mean, you recognize David had to take his parents out of their homeland in Judah. They're currently living as refugees in Moab. That is the extent of the persecution that David had experienced from Saul. And yet, what do we see? David takes hold of his clothes and he tears them. He mourns over Saul. He doesn't celebrate, he mourns. He and his men, they weep, they fast. David is even going to write a lament for Saul and Jonathan we'll take up next week. This clearly depicts David as what? A righteous man, a king after God's own heart. Listen, David was not motivated by revenge. David did not promote or act out of rebellion whatsoever. There was no attempt to usurp Saul's authority or take the throne by force. David was instead walking with the Lord. He had clean hands and a pure heart when it came to receiving the kingship that God had promised to give him. In fact, I would argue to the extent that it is possible for a mere fallen human man, David's motivations were pure here. There's no foul play. He wasn't grasping for kingship, attempting to seize the throne by natural human means. David is instead depicted in these verses as standing on the promises of God. God had anointed David king, right? He's the one who had done that, and he promised to give him the kingdom of Israel. And in response to that, David didn't say, okay, well, let me now gather an army to go take Saul on. Instead, he waited upon God. The Lord's anointed belongs to God. He's the one who takes away life, and he's the one who brings life, which is why on two separate occasions, David refused even when he had opportunity. Remember, it's really easy just to read this narrative that David didn't go gather up an army and fight Saul because he didn't have an army to gather. That's ignoring some straight-up facts. Twice he could off Saul. Twice he had Saul within his grasp. Twice. And both times he said, it is not okay for me to put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
You know, it's really interesting to note, uh, as far as this portion from the narrative, that David has really avoided the sins of his forefathers up to this point. What do I, what do I mean by that? I mean, we see him faithfully waiting upon the promises of the Lord. He has not taken a concubine, not to have a child of promise through natural means, as his father Abraham did. He did not deceive his father into receiving the blessing that belonged to his brother, as his father Jacob did. When he was tempted to take matters into his own hands in 1 Samuel 25, even then the Lord intervened so that his hands might remain pure and blood not be on his head. David is portrayed as a man of God. He has faults to be sure, but he's depicted here as being the man after God's own heart. David is the quintessential type, that is he is foreshadowing, points to the one who chooses to wait upon his Lord perfectly and trusting himself fully who won the judges justly. Not gloating over his enemies, but demonstrating real love to those who persecuted him. So even when the Lord delivers him from his enemy, he does not gloat over their destruction. Instead, he mourns over Israel's anointed. I think it's because David had in his heart Proverbs 17.5. If you want to write down this verse, it's probably a good one to write down. It says this, He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Or, that's not... Didn't gut punch you like it gut punched me this week. Proverbs 24, 17, 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him. Friends, David does not rejoice in Saul's death. David is grieved by the tragedy of his life. I don't think anyone here needs a seminary degree to see that David typifies the greater David, Jesus Christ. What does the Apostle Peter tell us about Jesus in 1 Peter 2? Peter tells us that Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Jesus did not gloat over his enemies, even as he marched into battle. We see this in Matthew chapter 23 as well. Instead, what did he say about Jerusalem? He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus laments the rebellion of his enemies. Even on the cross, as Jesus was accomplishing the salvation for his enemies, he did not return reviling for reviling. Instead, what did he pray? He prayed for the forgiveness for the very ones who mocked and derided him. When he was raised from the dead, he didn't gloat over his enemies, even though that would have been the most opportune time to do so. Instead, what? He preached peace to those who are near and far. He spoke the gospel to them through the apostles as they carried the gospel message of God's salvation for sinners. This isn't hard to apply, church. If Jesus did not gloat over his enemies, how much less should we rejoice when our enemy stumbles? I said it wasn't hard to apply. I didn't say it wasn't hard to live out. Because it is. Because I think if we're really honest, in our day and age where the rhetoric is so caustic, even we, who are the ones who are called to love our enemies, speak about them with such contempt and malice. We communicate to them with such hatred. We gloat when we see enemies of the cross stumble, or at least we're tempted to. 
I think this message is very important for our moment. There's really a great example of this in Philippians 3, verse 18 and on. But verse 18 even just says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Even weeping, he tells you. Listen, saints. Putting on Christ's love means putting on his love for his enemies. See, we're doing a lot of talking about our enemies these days. But where are the tears? Where is the sincere, heartfelt compassion for those who are walking as enemies of the cross? I want you to hear something. Listen to me. Overcoming evil with good begins with a heart that is far more concerned about our enemy's welfare than it is our own perceived rights and privileges. You want to know why? Because isn't that the gospel? (laughs) Didn't Jesus lay aside his rights and privileges in order to come and take upon himself your sin? To bear it on the cross that you might be called a child of God? I think we really need to ask ourselves something, friends. Are we more upset about people who are walking as enemies of the American Constitution or as enemies of the cross? Are we praying for political redemption for our country and neglecting the prayer of salvation for its constituents? Are we delighting when our enemy stumbles or are we rejoicing in God's forbearance and laboring to shine his lights in the midst of a crooked generation while entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly? See, there's there's a tension here that I can't possibly resolve in a few minutes, but I'll say it anyways. See, the tension is there is a day where we will rejoice when every cause of sin and all lawbreakers are removed from the earth. We will, in our glorification, rejoice in that, okay? See, we read things in the Old Testament that might even tempt us to think we're in a position that we can rejoice even now over the fall of our enemies. I would even bring up in this text that David is not going to mourn the Amalekite. He mourns for the Lord's anointed. And being a careful laborer of God's word, we need to recognize that and not over-apply it. And so, how do we apply it? Well, let's look at that next. See, the true king has received the report. The report has been substantiated. The true king has responded to the report. Now, we see the reward of the report. The true king rewards the report. How does the true king reward the report? Verse 13. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Now, what's important about that, just quickly, is that his father's an alien. He should know the law of the land. He's not ignorant to it. He doesn't know the Lord, but he should know the law of the land. David's then going to ask him a question that does not require a response in verse 14. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Of course, we've already been introduced to this idea that it is absolutely wrong to put your hands out against the Lord's anointed. But here's how it plays out. This messenger comes to David apparently expecting a reward. In fact, David interprets that way in 2 Samuel 4. So we have even more confirmation this is what he was after. The problem is he's put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. So he's going to receive a reward. 
the reward he's going to receive is his own death. Matthew Henry uh, commentates on this in the irony this way. He came with his clothes rent and made obeisance to David, pleasing himself with the fancy that he had the honor to be the first that did him homage as his sovereign. But it proved he was the first that received from him sentence of death as his judge. He did himself confess the crime so that the evidence was by the consent of all laws sufficient to convict him. The point is, that the law is clear here, and this man actually receives the just judgment for his crime. So, so here's David, the just king. He doesn't gloat over his enemies, and then he turns and he acts righteously to the man who had transgressed the law of God by putting his hand out against the Lord's anointed. See, one of the lessons for God's people as they're reading this is, okay, I get it clearly. Under no circumstance is it okay for us to put our hand out against the Lord's anointed, Right? The just king will execute justice against everyone who does. Let's just put those together. In fact, let's do it this way. Pick a person to be in the story. I know I said earlier we need to see this through the eyes of David. We need to get in David's shoes. Get out of David's shoes because you ain't David in the story, okay? Who are we in this story? Maybe you're Saul. Maybe, but you're not. You were never the Lord's anointed who failed. You're not Saul. You're not David. Maybe who could you be? Maybe you're just in the crowd. You're one of David's men. Maybe. Or maybe before you heard the gospel with faith, you were the Amalekite. Maybe if you've never seen yourself as the Amalekite in the story, maybe you've never heard the gospel. <laughs> because who's the Lord's anointed? Well, it was Saul. He was judged and put to death. But here's what's crazy. You want to know how we see Jesus in this? I gave you that homework last week. Take all three and put them together. You take Saul and you combine them with David. You throw in the Amalekite and you got the gospel. You can't get there with just one. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to simply execute justice against those who put their hands out against the Lord's anointed. Praise be to God because none of us would be here. Who's the Lord's anointed? There's only one and there's only ever been one. David is a type and the Lord only enters into relationship with him because of Christ. Hear me, David deserves Saul's end. But David does not receive Saul's end because Jesus, the true and greater David, came to receive Saul's end so that David could actually be called the Lord's anointed. That's the gospel. So he could be in a right relationship with God. So that he wouldn't strike down the Amalekites. Here's why you have to see yourself as the Amalekite in the story, friends. Because at the end of the day, you have put out your hand against the Lord's anointed. You've rebelled against him. Honestly, you would have been just as quick to drive the nails into his hands as the Roman soldiers were. You would have been just as quick to sentence him to death without any evidence as Pilate was. You'd have been just as quick to betray him as the Sanhedrin and as Judas. You'd have been just as quick to condemn him and put up false witnesses against him. You would have just as quick to fall asleep and leave him in the garden abandoned as his disciples who had walked with him for three years did. Who's left? No one. You want to know why? Because no one stands apart from Christ. No one. You want to know why we don't rejoice over the fall of our enemies? Because we are just like them. 
if Jesus had not graciously and humbly set aside his royal rights and privileges to come, not simply to execute justice, but to actually take upon himself the sin of Saul, the sin of the Malachites, and the rebellion for all of those whom he died for, the Amalekites' end would be our end. That would be us all day long. So friends, receive the peace of the gospel while there's still time. If you do not know Jesus Christ, receive him and in him every spiritual blessing. And brothers and sisters, if you claim to follow Christ, remember today and tomorrow and the next day that you were an Amalekite, but now you're an Israelite. Isn't that crazy? You should be an Amalekite. See, it's really easy there to just apply this broadly, and I think we need to do so. Loving our enemies, not gloating over those who stumble because we're just like them. But I do think there's one more specific application within the household of God. Why? Because we know that in Christ, we are the anointed. So brother and sister, if you've got beef with your fellow Christian in this church, you've got to resolve it. If you see your brother or sister stumbling in some way and you find any delight in that, you need to repent. You need to seek them and prayerfully restore them. In conclusion, in 2 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 16, we see there's a transition. The king Israel had asked for, the king just like the nations has died. David is ascending to the throne. And we will see him take the throne soon. We see him depicted as the true and righteous king who does not gloat over his enemies, but executes justice. And more than that, we see a beautiful picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ, reminding us that we who were once Amalekites are no more. Not because we did anything smarter or wise. Christ has done it all. Haven't we sung that? So praise be to Christ and let us with all the energy we have restore our relationships with our brothers and sisters. Do not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, you know our hearts better than we do. Father, you know how much we struggle with continuing to harbor and maybe even cultivate contemptuous, malicious thoughts towards those who are our enemies. Lord, you've done it in my heart this week. You've revealed it in my heart. Father, would you help us to see people not according to the flesh anymore? Would you help us remember who we were that we might rejoice all the more in who we are? Father, we might cling to your son and celebrate the life that is in him and proclaim the peace that he offers to all men. Father, we ask for your help in this because we are weak. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.